Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie, and welcome to another Glad You Asked episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. As we mentioned last time, we're coming up on a summer break, and since we won't be releasing any new episodes for a while, we wanted to squeeze in one last Glad You Asked for you to enjoy. Yes, and normally when we are preparing for a GYA episode, uh, we'll usually take to social media and we ask you to send us your questions. And normally we receive far more excellent questions than we are even possibly able to answer in one episode. And that's exactly what's happened this time. That's right. So I have a file marked GYA leftovers where I always save all (laughs) of the questions that we haven't been able to get to. So some of these questions have been in there a while maybe a couple of years even. We're not sure exactly when all these questions were sent in. But don't worry, we use the good Tupperware for these leftovers so they would stay nice and fresh for you. And that's where we're drawing our questions from tonight. So let's get started. Amy, what's our first question from our leftovers file? Uh, leftover dish number one uh, comes from Hannah on our Facebook page in uh, the messages. And she writes, what are your thoughts on a woman doing a children's message during the main church service? Our church does a five to 10 minute uh, children's message each Sunday where the kids come to the front and one of the children's message gals teaches them a little lesson. It's meant for the kids, but it's in a mixed adult audience uh, hearing it. So our church doesn't own a building and we meet in a location we, where we can't do Sunday school in you know the classes uh, in this church. So uh, this is what we're able to do for for the kids, not sure though about women's role in it. Well, Hannah, thanks so much for asking. I hope it didn't take us too long. I, I don't know how old this one was, but thank you. A very relevant for today anyway. Uh, lots of churches meet in locations other than a formal church building. Uh, some meet in parks or rent out school lunchrooms even or other locations. Um, church isn't really where you meet. It is the gathering or the ecclesia of the saints to hear the word of God preached by a shepherd, uh, a leader of his flock, like a pastor or an elder. So when a woman comes to the front of the gathering of the people as part of the regular service, she's really approaching a place of authority. So even if she's not standing at a uh, an official pulpit, which is really just a, a wood or plexiglass uh, lectern, she's actually standing in front of the congregation to teach, or maybe she's sitting down with the kids. Now, are women allowed to teach children? Well, of course they are. But when she teaches scripture in front of the congregation, even though her message is directed toward the kiddos, she actually is standing in a place, like I said, of authority, even if the pastor is standing right there with her giving his approval. You know, I think it would be best if he actually taught the message to the kids and then the children could, um, you know, maybe follow the female teachers to their Sunday school. Uh, In this case, it, it didn't sound like there was a Sunday school. Maybe there could be a little gathering out in the hall. But if that's the case, um, you know, have the have the male pastor. Um, that's the only kind there is, by the way. The pastor <laughs> give the message, uh, but really to have her teach up front as a church leader for that service. No, I really do believe uh, that this is crossing a line. Any thoughts on that, Michelle? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, even though she's technically teaching the children up there, you know, she's not directly teaching the men. Uh, I would say right. at the very least, the optics are bad. I mean, it. 
Just think about the messages that it sends. It it plants the idea in the kids' minds and maybe some of the adults, too, who don't know any better, that it's okay for a woman to teach the Bible in front of the whole congregation. Um, But, you know, like you said, if the pastor does it, it sends the message that his teaching is for everyone in the church. I mean, the kids get that message. And, uh, and mm-hmm. it's for everyone, you know, even them and that they need to listen while he's talking. I mean, they listen during the children's sermon. They listen during the big people's sermon, you know. Right. So, um, I think, yeah, that you're right that if the pastor would do it or, you know, if the pastor doesn't feel like he can do that extra thing during the week, maybe one of the elders or the minister of music who is male or whoever, somebody like that could do it yeah. possibly or not just another, doctrinally sound man in the church. So yeah, that would be my agreement as well. All righty. Here's a question from Hope over on my Facebook page. And she said this, deathbed conversions when no one is there to witness it. According to scripture, would it ever happen? I know God can do whatever he wants, but is it likely to happen? Well, there are three issues at play in this question. The possible, the probable, and the verifiable. So let's start with the possible. Yes, it is possible for someone at or near the point of death to be genuinely converted to Christ. God is so kind even as to give us an example of this uh, in the thief on the cross, in the, that story in scripture. Luke 23 tells us what happened when Jesus was being crucified. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's a pretty clear deathbed conversion. So yes, it is possible. And we thank the Lord for showing us that in scripture. All right, next, let's deal with the verifiable aspect. Our listeners specifically asked if a deathbed conversion is possible or probable if no one was there to witness it. Yes, if you think about it, most people who get saved are not on their deathbed and they're often alone when it happens. So whether or not another person is around at the moment someone gets saved is really irrelevant to whether or not they actually got saved, you know, deathbed or not. The only required witness to someone's salvation is God and he's always around. All right. Now, are deathbed conversions probable? Well, from our human perspective, it's really hard to say. On the one hand, you take somebody like Pharaoh back in Exodus. You'll remember he hardened his heart again and again against God. Do you think that when he was standing in his chariot on dry land in the middle of the Red Sea and he looked up and saw those huge walls of water about to crash down on him that he repented? Well, based on his hardness of heart and his spiritual track record, we would probably say no. But then you've got somebody like the thief on the cross who has spent his whole life in sin. He knows his life is about to end, but he repents and gets saved. And what about Paul, who gets saved while he's on the way to murder Christians? So here's what I would say. 
probable isn't really the right word when it comes to anyone getting saved, deathbed or not. God is sovereign over salvation. So everyone he intends to save will be saved in his perfect timing. There are no oopsies in salvation where God accidentally fails to draw someone to himself in time for that person to be saved before she dies. He's He's never lost anybody yet, and he's not going to. That being said, we're just puny humans. We can't see beyond the veil. We don't know how God perfectly orchestrates his sovereignty over salvation and man's responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. So don't be one of those people who, you know, senses God wooing you to himself and you harden your heart against him and say, hey, I'm enjoying living in sin right now. I'll I'll get with God, you know, later when I'm old and I've had my fun. You do not know when your life will be required of you. You could be dead before this podcast episode is over. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin and you and your need for salvation, look, just give it up now. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for the penalty of your sin and be saved now. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Not everybody gets a deathbed. Amy, any thoughts you'd like to add? Yeah, I I absolutely agree. Loved how you slipped the gospel message in there. Um, and, you know, God, you're right. God does save whom he wills. So if someone professes it as, you know, at the last minute, it's because God first drew that dying sinner to himself. And uh, it reminded me of a verse, uh, another verse, uh, and I like the ones that you picked. This one, it reminded me of uh, Matthew 20. Um, and, and this is Jesus uh, talking about the kingdom of heaven in one of his parables. I'll just read it real quick. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired at about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, yet you have made them equal to us who have come borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And it just reminded me of that 11th hour calling that some people do get. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it just occurs to me, sometimes we are so concerned over our free will in salvation. We never think about God's free will. God gets to choose, like you just said, am I not allowed to choose, you know, who I'm going to save, when I'm going to save, how I'm going to save that person. So yeah, that's a great passage. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go to another one. Um, this question comes from Pamela over on Instagram. And she asks, what are your thoughts on being friends with others who live in sin? We have neighbors who are a same-sex couple and have little children. These women say they believe in God and are Christians. And my heart hurts for their kids. It's a subject that comes up with my son, who is 12, and he asks all the time. There are other instances as well, such as children his age claiming to be non-binary and their parents support it. These are acquaintances, really. However, I know what the Bible says, but I struggle to instruct my son on these issues. It's such a confusing time for our children right now, and I always want to guide him with the correct wisdom. He's highly intelligent for his age, and we read the Bible together every day. Oh, Pamela, great, great questions. First, let me say, I I just commend you for reading your Bible with your 12-year-old son every day. And of course, you want to make sure that you're raising him up in the way he should go. You're doing that. And uh, you know that means applying the scripture that you're reading to everyday situations like these. It is getting harder. You're absolutely right. So let's start with the neighbors, the lesbian neighbors who are raising children and whether uh, friendship is possible. We, of course, are to be kind to everyone we meet, and most of the folks we work with live near or call our family members are not on the narrow path of salvation. There are few who find it, the Bible says. The world is on the wide path, and they need Jesus, the real Jesus of Scripture. There are many people who think they have a faith in Jesus, but they're simply adding him to their sinful lifestyles. They've never really repented. And that sounds to be the case with your neighbors. And it doesn't matter if they say they love Jesus. We really are to regard them as lost. So what do we do with lost people? Well, we share the light of hope in Christ with them whenever and wherever we can. Can we have friendships with people who are lost and living in blatant sin? Well, a lot of listeners probably won't like this answer, but no, at least not in the true sense of friendship. You can serve lost people, you can laugh with them, babysit their kids, grieve with them, even like them, and so forth. But true friendship is more than just enjoying a laugh or two. It is really a bond of the spirit. It's an intimacy. Here's a couple of verses that come to mind you might want to think about. Uh, James chapter 4 gives a very stern warning. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we have to be really careful, ladies, about with whom we fellowship, because our common bond is our regenerated hearts because of God's mercy and grace. If we have deep friendships with people living in rebellious sin, we're really in danger of compromise. And it doesn't happen right away usually, but it can over time. Second Corinthians 6.15 asks this, What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And there's a verse in Amos that you might be familiar with. Can two walk together except they be agreed? So despite the fact that Jesus interacted constantly with non-believers, Jesus was selective about his very closest companions. He reserved his most intimate connection with his handpicked disciples. It's the same for your son at school, really. There's a lot of confused kids, as you pointed out, who are experimenting with their identities, that kind of thing. 
Um, we are to be friendly. We are to be loving and kind and treat everyone with dignity because even though we're not all children of God, as in born again believers, we are all image bearers. And that's why it's so hard for Christians who have unsaved friends and unsaved family members. You know what I mean here. You love them, but you feel like you're from two different planets. And basically, in a way, you are. Uh, what do you think, Michelle? Yeah, I've just been, I completely agree with that last statement because I've just been sitting here thinking about the people that I'm friendly with who are not Christians. And you, I don't know if everybody else feels like this or not, but I just feel sort of a separation between me and that person. Whereas, you know, you could meet a stranger who's a genuine believer and immediately you feel that connection. So, I mean, we're always talking about don't rely on your feelings and everything, which of course (laughs) we should not. But that's something that I've experienced. And I'm sure, you know, some of our listeners have as well. It's just, uh, so I was sitting here thinking, I I don't know how anybody really can be, anybody who's a Christian really can have that sort of intimate friendship with someone who is not a believer, I would just feel so uncomfortable in that situation. I, I'm just speaking for myself, but but that's how I yeah. would feel in that situation. Well, and there are people in the world who are just absolutely delightful, and but mm-hmm. yet, but yet, uh, we're not to be linking in fellowship uh, because that really is a spiritual bond. Right. Absolutely. And the only other thing that I would suggest for for Pamela here is, you know, maybe take your son through the Gospels and look at how Jesus Mm -hmm. related to people who were sinners. You know, we we always hear people on social media or whatever saying, oh, Jesus hung around with sinners, you know, like he approved (laughs) of them or something like that. But he didn't. Jesus was very kind and loving to sinners, but he also called them to repentance and, and belief in the gospel. So read through those gospel stories where Jesus was interacting with sinners and mm-hmm. look how he did it. I mean, he is our perfect example. So yeah. we need to try and emulate what he did and how he treated people. So. Amen. All right. Our next question comes from Cheryl on Instagram, and she says, I am a part of a multi-denominational ministry. How do you recommend responding to unsound doctrine in that context? Well, first you want to be sure that you understand the difference between actual false doctrine and disputable secondary and tertiary theological matters. Uh, you've got the prosperity gospel, works righteousness, women, pa- women pastors, uh, things like oneness churches that have unbiblical beliefs about the Trinity. Those are all types of false doctrine. But then you've got paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism, uh, differing eschatologies. Those are things we can agree to disagree on and still work together in some ways. We separate over genuine false doctrine, not differing views on baptism, eschatology, and things like that, or over matters of opinion like vaccines or whether or not to observe Christmas. So make sure that you've got your categories straight on on that issue. Now, ideally, it would it would have been best to investigate the beliefs and practices of all the denominations involved before joining this ministry. And if any of them practice or believe false doctrine, then you would have known not to join in the first place. But, you know, maybe things looked okay when you first joined and then the false doctrine only recently came to light. That's what happens sometimes. So in that case, here's what you do. 
Number one, you approach the person, the people, or the head of the ministry and ask plenty of kind, good faith questions to make sure that you clearly understand what's going on, that you under, you know, that you aren't misunderstanding anything and that false doctrine, real false doctrine is actually being promoted. So make sure you've got your, your facts straight there. Number two, Listen to our episodes about how to confront false teaching. We've got a couple of them. Words with friends, how to contend with loved ones, and then also how to talk to your church leaders about false teachers. And we'll have those in the show notes for you. Number three, pray for wisdom and how best to approach the person that you know, you're know you going to have to approach. And number four, talk to the person and show her the biblical evidence that the teaching in question is false. And one of two things will happen when you when you do those things. First of all, the person could see the light and repent and correct things. I'm really sorry to say that that hardly ever happens. But if it does, praise God and you can stay involved in the ministry. Second of all, and most likely, the person will dig her heels in and insist that you're being unloving or a Pharisee and refuse to repent and change things. If that's the case, you'll need to quit the ministry. Let me give you some scriptures to study on that, and you can hit pause and go grab a a pen real quick. Um, But these are some of the scriptures that you can go back and look up later. I'm just going to hit a couple of them real quick in a second. Look up Ephesians 5.11, Romans 16.17-18, 2 John 9-11, and 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. And I'm going to read part of that last passage to you. And it's going to sound very familiar to you <laughs> because this passage applies to this situation, just like it applied to the situation that Amy was just dealing with. So listen carefully. It says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Therefore, go out from their midst and be ye separate from them, says the Lord. If you end up having to quit over the false doctrine, make sure that the person or the head of the ministry knows exactly why you're quitting. Don't weenie out and make an excuse. She needs that prophetic warning in order to repent. Amy? Yeah, not only does she need that warning, but the people who are in that ministry with you need that warning too. So one thing I thought of, Michelle, I agree with everything you said. Um, Sometimes these issues come up in group conversations and then there it is, you know, Um, and there's a danger that other Christians in the room could be influenced by whatever false uh, doctrine is being shared. So you're going to have to speak up because if you say nothing, then this false teaching could deceive even more people. Uh, So you might want to be prepared if you know it's coming because you you know probably can see it a mile away. Um, so uh, be prepared with a, a Bible verse or two and say something like, "Well, it, at my church we go by Matthew twenty four such and such, which says this." And then read the scripture and point out the difference between what is being taught and uh, the scripture, the Bible. And obviously, when you hold up any teaching to the Word of God, they ought to match. All right. Uh, I had another thought too as you were talking about uh, this question about. Um, 
multi-denominational ministry, because there are a lot of those. Um, and it just reminded me that there's a large music festival up in our area uh, that our church partnered with for many years. Now, this was a former church of mine, not the one we attend now. And um, the the festival would invite local and national groups to come and set up a booth or so. Uh, we had Christian colleges come and missionary groups and you know local churches, that kind of thing. Uh, we also had, um, and when I say we, I mean them, <laughs> we also had a, a Roman Catholic bishop from the archdiocese up here that came to be a part of the speaking and teaching. And uh, so you can imagine kind of the angst that that would cause, uh, because this was, you know, Christian music, you know, contemporary music and, you know, rock bands and that kind of thing. Um, and then there was also a local church giving a mass on Sunday mornings uh, at a different tent than the evangelical mass. Um, now, or I mean the message. Now, this was a long time ago, um, years and years ago. I don't attend that concert series any longer, of course, for obvious reasons. But at one point when I was there years and years ago, there was this giant statue of Mary in the merchandise hall mm. where all the booths were. So, you know, in, and that was like, Okay. Um, and if that weren't enough, that very same year they had, um, Jim Wallace from Sojourners come. He is the leftist social justice guy, if you don't know who that is. And he was their keynote speaker for everyone speaking to all these young people. Now that was back in, um, 2010. And I, I just remember the, the result of people taking a stand against this. Uh, this kind of partnership was the launch of the, uh, old Stand Up for the Truth radio program that I was a mm. part of for five years. So I guess God could use things like that for good, I guess. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, you you really have to be careful with, with uh, multi-denominational ministries because things can go sideways, uh, as as it did in this case. All right, so here's another question that came up from our Facebook messages. Uh, this one is from Teresa, and she asks this. We still have college-age kids still living at home. Although they have been raised in the Christian faith and made professions of faith at young ages, we rarely, if ever, see fruit bearing with repentance. I try to encourage them in the scriptures, but it's generally not readily embraced. Is there a point that parents are simply casting their pearls before swine and should just leave them to the consequences of their decisions while continuing to pray for them? Well, Teresa, thank you so much. Um, you know, as we record this, a lot of college students are going to be coming home for the summer months. So I thought this was really a timely question. Um, yeah, you, you do want to keep praying for them. Uh, I, I would say don't give up, uh, in at least that part of it, but it sounds like, uh, your, your students are living there throughout the school year. So not just the summer. So you're getting really a front row seat to the fruit stand. And, uh, it is really good that you're inspecting that fruit because that that part of parenting never ends, no matter how old they get. Remember that fruit just isn't, you know, about good behavior like taking out the trash and keeping a room tidy. Galatians 5.22 and 23 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of a Christian, and we hope it's in the lives of our own children. It's really common to see young people make a profession of faith, but then seemingly grow out of it as teens and young adults, and that's usually because they don't really have a saving faith. 
You know, as a mom, it really is alarming to come to that realization when the fruit just isn't there. And you know what? It's even more heartbreaking when they actually say to you, Mom, I just don't believe what you believe. That, believe me, that is, that is a tough one. It sounds like your kids haven't said that to you yet. So here's what I'd like to suggest that you do. Get each one alone. Just uh, go out for coffee or a fun meal, and then just drop the question and get them to think about where they are in their walk with Jesus. Uh, By the way, you're going to want to pray over that meal. That sort of sets the stage for what's to come. Um, You might want to start by reminiscing about the time that they were baptized or, you know, that time they made a profession at Bible camp. And then you're going to want to ask them the question, honey, I'm curious. Uh, You know, our faith grows as we mature. Do you still consider yourself faithful? You know, don't bring up the sinful behavior just yet because, you know, well, there's reasons for that. But just ask this question. Just start there. And if she says no, well, unfortunately, there you have your answer. Uh, your conversation can then shift to the why if you want to. Um, you can try to correct faulty theology or whatever. But, you know, she's not going to have the same spiritual understanding that you do. Be prepared for that answer. She might very well say No. Just encourage her not to shut the door, though. Just not, don't reject Christ outright. Leave the door open, um, you know, if you can. Um, you know, that's going to be a conversation depending on, on the, the child. However, if she says yes, then you can take a number of different different tactics, starting with uh, what I would probably do is immediately uh, sigh relief. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd be like, whew. All right, remind her of her, you know, testimony if she has one, and then ask her the spiritual question. See, you know, do some probing. Ask, how has your faith changed since that day? Are you still praying, honey? Is Jesus still guiding your life? Because really, it's not about her so much as it is about Christ. So you want to point her to Christ. Are there any struggles that you have? And just remind her what those fruits of the Spirit are and ask her about them. Do you feel the peace of Christ? Do you have that? Do you have joy? Offer to be a part of her growth. Would you like to do something with me, like a a summer Bible study or a church outing, something like that? All of these questions that you can pray about, um, pray about them with your husband, um, pray about them, you know, as you prepare for uh, this one-on-one time you have with your child. All these questions are, of course, going to depend on your own situation. But the one thing I would say is that you are not the Holy Spirit, so you can relax. That's not your job. You are the seed planter and the encourager, Mom. It is the Holy Spirit's job to conform us to the image of Christ, making us more like him. What do you think, Michelle? Yeah, I think this uh, this kind of goes back to some of the things that we were saying when we were talking about deathbed confessions. Yeah. Um, one thing I would encourage you to do, mom, is to, especially if they have been, if you raise them in a doctrinally sound church, just remember that you they've heard the gospel. Yeah. They know what the gospel is. Not that you shouldn't ever share the gospel with them again. I'm just saying, Trust that God can still work through what they heard mm-hmm. when they were little children to save them later in life. And, uh, and don't, don't be anxious about that. Don't always be on your guard and, and, and being fearful that, oh, if I, if I don't say just the right yeah. words that my child won't get saved or, uh, you know, or that I have to say the right ch- exact words or my child won't get saved. Mm-hmm. Leave that with the Lord. Trust the Lord, um, to, save your child in his timing and in his way, just like we were talking about before with, you know, with Pharaoh or with the, the thief on the cross or with Paul or, or whoever. And then the, the only other thing that I would remind you of is, um, 
that this isn't just about your child. Yeah. This is sanctification for you too. This is helping you to, it probably will drive you to your knees in prayer more. It'll help you to depend on the Lord more. It will help you to, um, to trust him with your child, to find your contentment in him, not in the circumstances of your child, uh, walking uprightly and, and being saved. So try to, have joy during this trial, knowing what God is doing in your heart and, uh, and just keep praying for your child. And, you know, don't, don't worry and be anxious, but when the Holy Spirit provides a moment where it's appropriate to, to say, you know, I know you've, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about this or whatever, but is there anything I can pray for you about? Yeah, that's great. Or slip the gospel in there, you know, when there's a moment or, or a, an appropriate vi- Bible verse whenever there's a moment, things like that. And, and look, if you miss it that one time and you, you're thinking back over your day at the end of your day and you go, Oh, I should have said this and yeah. so just calm down, trust the Lord, put your child in God's hands and leave your child there. The Lord will deal with your child. The Lord will sustain you through this whole thing. So trust the Lord about that. I know it's difficult. I have a prodigal of my own and um, yeah, and Amy does too. And so it's hard and it's heartbreaking. You know, that verse, I believe it's in second John, third John, where he says, I have no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking in the truth. Mm -hmm. Even if you you know, a lot of people feel like that refers to John and the church and the, you know, spiritual children and whatnot, but it really does apply to your own children as well. And as much joy as it brings us when our children are walking in the truth, it's 180 degrees of pain when they're not walking in the right. truth. So we know how you feel and we have great compassion for you and, and love for you. And, and, uh, but trust the Lord to use this situation, if nothing else, to sanctify you. Yeah. Amen. Okay. Uh, okay. It's time for some quickie questions now. Right. So let's see if we can dispense really quickly with a few of these questions or answer really quickly a few of these questions. All right. So Kelly asks, is there any reason at all that a woman needs to be ordained? No. <laughs> Well, that was fast. Uh, that's 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 the answer. But let me explain just a little bit more, so I'm earning my paycheck here. Uh, ordination involves testing someone and setting him aside to serve in an office of the church, pastor, elder, or deacon. So, speaking as a Southern Southern Baptist, and this may be slightly different in other denominations. What typically happens is that a man who wants to serve in one of these offices will undergo a period of preparation, you know, Bible study, prayer, discipleship, whatnot, with a few of the elders or deacons. And then he will appear formally before all the elders or deacons to be examined by them about his testimony, his character, his doctrine, and so on. If he passes that examination and they're agreed that he should become a pastor, elder, or deacon, they bring him before the church. And he'll probably give his testimony before the church, explain why he wants to serve in this office, and sometimes possibly answer questions from the congregation. Most congregations will then, or maybe later, vote on whether or not to confer ordination. Then the elders or deacons will lay hands on him and pray for him. And then you get to have punch and cake in the fellowship (laughs) hall. (laughs) So in churches that still do an actual formal process of ordination, it is for offices of the church, 
pastor, elder, or deacon that are all reserved by scripture for men. So no, there's never any reason for a woman to go through the ordination process, nor would it be biblical or appropriate for her to do so. But whether you're a man or a woman, you don't need to be ordained to effectively serve the church. There are lots of things that God has for us to do. Lots of those good works that he has ordained for us to walk in. So Amy, any thoughts about that one? I I liked your uh, swift answer at the beginning. No. (laughs) All right. That's a good one. Well, I figure maybe some of our listeners are new believers yeah. yes. to, and they're new to church and they have no idea what ordination is. So, yeah. and honestly, you could be a longtime member of a church and never have seen an ordination service before. So, I actually have seen an ordination women's service way, way back. And I thought even at the time before I was even discerning and God had to pry my eyes open uh, long after that. But <laughs> I, I still thought that was very strange, even even then. So, yes, absolutely. Not needed for women. Nope. All right. So Pamela on Instagram says this, your thoughts on sharing testimonies of when we were saved and our life prior to Jesus. Hmm. So, Pamela, I'm not sure if you mean sharing your testimony in front of the church or sharing it with your friends or maybe sharing it in a witnessing encounter, but I know I'm always very encouraged to hear the testimony of someone who has been genuinely born again. Um, At my church, every new member and every candidate for baptism gives her testimony of salvation. So what they do is first, the pastors will provide you with a few, you know, parameters as to the length and the details they want you to be sure to include in your testimony. And then you write out your testimony and you email it to the pastors. And if they have any questions or suggestions, they let you know. Next, what they typically do is they record a video of you giving your testimony. Then that video is played right before your baptism or during the members meeting when we're voting on you for membership. Um, Occasionally, they aren't able to record it for whatever reason. And in that case, you read it live before the congregation or before the members meeting. I personally, I think this is a fantastic way to do it. I mean, it keeps people from going too long. It keeps them from chasing rabbit trails keeps them from oversharing gory details of really grotesque sin. Uh, it keeps them from veering off into preaching, which is something women always want to avoid. And it keeps them from promoting false doctrine that the pastors didn't know about before the person got up there to share their testimony. And then the video aspect is great if you're nervous about public speaking. Um, if you're wondering if it's okay for a woman to give her testimony live to the church with men present, yes, the biblical prohibition is against women pastoring, preaching, and instructing men in the scriptures and holding authority over men in the gathering of the church. And you're not doing any of that when you're giving your testimony. You are testifying to what God has done for you personally. So giving your testimony in church is fine. Sharing it with friends is certainly fine. Sharing it in a witnessing encounter is also fine. Just keep in mind that when you're witnessing to someone, you need to explain the gospel to her. Law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for forgiveness of her sin. Your testimony might be a helpful supplement to your presentation of the gospel, but it is not the gospel itself. If you only have time to share one thing in an evangelistic situation, share the gospel, not your testimony. Amy, thoughts? 
Yeah, I, I do like you, uh, love to hear testimonies. It's, it's one of my favorite things. I just love to hear, um, the saints share, uh, because there's so many different ways that, that the Lord reaches into their lives and, and grabs hold of their hearts and gives them a new one. And, uh, and that's all him. So, you know, salvation is the same for him, but for us, our stories are so different. Uh, one thing I, I really love how you added, make sure it's, it's a supplement to the presentation of the gospel. Uh, you know, we've all heard cases where people have just this amazing, uh, you know, electrical moment of being saved. And they'll, they'll share that, you know, they were a drug addict or something like that. And the moment that uh, they decided to follow Jesus, their lives became clean. And that's not really the gospel. And if you follow some of those stories, uh, you come to find out that that's that's it. That's all it is. And they don't really grow in faith and they don't talk about Jesus. They talk about, you know, what they were then and what they are now, but they never say why. And so, um, you know, and that's a, that's a generalization, but I have heard, uh, you know, people do that and then they fall away because what happens when right. the behavior comes back, you know? So, uh, it's, it's a, just a little warning there that, um, you know, testimonies are great, but make sure that your life is about the gospel. Make sure that you are following the risen Christ and not the before and after yes. story. That's and all, if that's I could just I offer about. one more quick word of encouragement sort of on that note, um, I have heard a lot of testimonies, maybe it's just at my church, I don't know, but a lot of the testimonies that, that I hear from adults who are joining the church or people who are getting baptized or whatever, a lot of them will mm-hmm. say, I remember when my third grade Sunday school teacher said thus and so, and that has always stuck with me. And that's part of my testimony. Or I remember my mom Mm. praying with me every night and that's, you know, how I got led to Christ and and things like this. So I just want to encourage our moms and our women who are maybe teaching children in the church don't give up because what you're doing really, really matters. And it will, it will definitely, uh, you know, be rewarded by the Lord one day. And so I just, uh, I just want to encourage you to keep on keeping on with pouring the gospel into those kids at church, into those kids in your home. All right. So this is a website comment from Karen, and you can always comment on our website if you want to at a word fitly spoken dot life. Here's what she says. The pastor at my church gives a sermon only about once a month or possibly twice every six weeks or so and allows other men in the church to give the sermon instead. Sometimes he's at another church filling in where there's no pastor, and sometimes he's sitting in the congregation listening to them. These men are not trained in any biblical sense. My husband and I are beginning to question if we need to start looking for another church. Well, you might need to, or you might not need to. It's it's a little hard to say not knowing any more information than this. Some churches that have a plurality of elders rotate the preaching and teaching assignments among themselves. That's perfectly fine, biblically speaking, if they're biblically qualified elders, meaning that they meet the qualifications for elders laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And one of those qualifications is able to teach. Able to teach means able to teach. You know, they rightly handle and explain scripture in mm-hmm. context as uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 instructs. Um, you know, Titus 1.9 says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Or as Nehemiah 8.8 8 puts it, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood 
the reading. So scripture requires elders to be able to teach. Now, it says nothing about how they arrive at the ability to teach. In other words, there are no specific requirements for any sort of particular training one way or another that they have to undergo. So if these men are biblically qualified as elders and able to teach, they're not doing anything wrong and there's no reason for you to leave your church. If they're not able to teach and thus not biblically qualified, there is a problem and you might need to leave your church if it's not corrected biblically. My advice is to make an appointment with your pastor and kindly and lovingly ask some questions to gain clarity on the situation and then also to express your concerns. Amy, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And, and Karen, I, I know there's probably a lot of women who are in your shoes too, who, you know, you, you're not quite sure what to make of this when the, when the pastor is not always, uh, upfront there. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with Michelle. Um, you know, make, make that appointment, ask those questions and do express your concerns. If you uh, can go with your husband, that would be uh, the best way to do it. Um, one thing, and this doesn't apply to, uh, to Karen who asked the question, uh, but just one thing came to mind. And that is over the years, um, I've, I've been to some churches where people are just very excited about you know, the mm-hmm. one pastor, the guy, you know, they, they come to see the guy, he tells the stories, he's entertaining, he's charismatic, and I don't mean in a Pentecostal kind of way. I mean, he's just very, he's like a TED Talk teacher. He's, he's really, um, you know, he's, he's uh, somebody that they're attracted to listening to every every week. And so when he's not there, it's a huge disappointment. And I just, ladies, if, if that's you, um, don't be tempted to make it about the pastor whoever who's ever up there don't don't make it about that make it about Christ make it about the message that you're hearing and that it is truly the gospel and uh, you know that he's exegeting uh, scripture that he's he's pulling out those nuggets of truth from you know so that uh, you can learn and just be well-fed sheep um, so so again they, they call that when, when when people go and it's all about the pastor they they call mm-hmm. that a cult of personality so we don't want to be in a, a cult of personality personality, we want to be uh, a rallying around the King of Kings. So that's all I had to uh, say there. But Amen. again, great question, Karen. Thank you. All right. Well, you know what? We have we still have quite a few questions uh, that are in the leftovers. We're going to wrap those up uh, really <laughs> tightly in foil and saran wrap and um, burp the, uh, you know, the, the little uh, Tupperware thing there, put them back in the fridge. Maybe we'll have to freeze some of those because we're taking the summer off, but uh, we'll dig those back out again. And I'm, I promise you, uh, we will make sure that those questions will come up fresh again, uh, the ones we didn't get to. So if you had one of those questions, um, don't worry about about it. They're uh, in safe storage for now. <laughs> so, oh, well, that's going to wrap things up for this leftovers edition of Glad You Asked on A Word Fitly Spoken. Thanks to all our faithful listeners who send in questions uh, when we ask for we them. Surely we surely do. do. Don't forget to you. stop by our website, awordfitlyspoken.life, and check out all of our resources. This summer, you'll especially want to familiarize yourself with the tag tab marked Recent Episodes. We could be like other podcasts who go on hiatus and rerun episodes that the hosts pick out. But 
at a word fitly spoken. You get to choose. That's right. It's choose your own rerun every week this summer <laughs> at a word fitly spoken. Go to the re- recent episodes tab, mm-hmm. click on play from the beginning and choose your favorites from over 170 episodes. And let us hear from you on social media during the summer. Which episodes are you listening to and why? And what was your favorite episode? Yes, be sure to stay in touch with us for the next several weeks. We'll be back before you know it. And until next fall, have a great summer and walk worthy. 